is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Suggested for mature audiences. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hello, hello. My name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast, episode 384. Thank you sincerely for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with us. We realize we skipped an episode this past week. We feel really bad at time of release right now. We were in tapings for other episodes that are still to come. We took on way too much, and then life happened, and before you know it, it's a whole week later. Thanks for your patience. If you care, we love you. Before we start, if you're in the L.A. area, June 2nd through 4th, come see us at one of the best horror conventions in the freaking world. Celebrating the art of monsters and movie magic, it's called Monster Palooza. It goes down in Pasadena, California. We're going to be at booth 325, which I think was the very first booth we had at Monster Palooza a few years back. It's right by a set of doors on the side with the carpeting. So please come and say hey, and let's hang for a bit. On that Friday, I'm going to be hosting a Freddy vs. This is Jason Panel with Robert England and Ken Kersinger in celebration of the film's 20th anniversary. I am super nervous. That goes down in the main hall, and I'm going to try my best not to mess it up, but I likely will. You can come make fun of me. And uh, that out of the way, on to today's adventure. All right, the sequel to 2020's drive-in smash, Becky, is one of the coolest and most fun films ever. The Wrath of Becky, starring Lulu Wilson, is going to be in theaters everywhere May 26th. You are joined by the film's creators, this outstanding duo. There, I use that word again. Lauren can make fun of me for that, too. Uh, of Suzanne Kuhn and Matt Angel. Listen to their incredible stories of indie filmmaking, their passionate approach and dedication towards giving you an absolutely wild ride that will crawl inside you and poke at every nerve in the very best way. It's a relentless and blood-soaked odyssey of revenge and redemption, a comic book brought to life, and it's happening on episode 384 with The Wrath of Becky and Suzanne Kuhn and Matt Angel now. Now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two incredibly talented storytellers whose uniqueness is absolutely electric. Back in 2017, they cobbled together $100,000 and in 17 days created their debut feature. It would become one of the most watched and talked about thrillers in Netflix history. It was called The Open House, starring Dylan Minnette, which they independently wrote, directed, and produced. Their stunning follow-up was 2021's Hypnotic, which is a beautifully shot and immersive experience that keeps viewers on the edge of their seats. It's got standout performances from the incomparable Kate Siegel and Jason O'Mara, and tremendous emphasis and thought into the personality of the camera. Hypnotic remains as kind of like a showpiece for how technique and mechanics can manipulate emotion. They're so good at doing this. And it's so exciting that these filmmakers are back with another new adventure for us. Once again, this one is going to blow your mind. All right. It's a sequel to Becky starring Lulu Wilson, which became the drive-in hit of the summer of 2020. This follow-up had its premiere at South by Southwest this year to tremendous and well-deserved acclaim. It continues the story of Becky and her dog Diego, who are rebuilding their lives after the events of the first film with a group of fascists break into their home and center on a relentless and bloody odyssey of revenge and redemption that is absolutely unforgettable from beginning to end. The Wrath of Becky is only in theaters May 26th. We are honored to welcome the duo behind it all, Suzanne Coote and Matt Angel. Yeah! Yeah! That was not only so well executed, but the nicest thing anyone's ever ever said said about me. What are you (laughs) talking about? My life. Yeah. Wow. Including the birth of my son and marrying Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Number one. (laughs) That paragraph is number one. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well well deserved, guys. And wow, you two. I mean, you crushed it like we knew you would. We're so excited to be talking about this today. Congrats on the film and knocking it out of the park. Thank you. Thank you. I got to say, the way that you guys both weave elements of horror to empower and elevate mystique and wonder. There is such an art to it. 
And we would love to just crawl inside your brain for a bit here and kind of get a brief snapshot of what inspires you and what feeds and continues to push this out of you. So, Suzanne, we'll start with you. In terms of horror, what were the moments kind of in your formative years as a viewer that have attached themselves to you? Um, let's see. I think what's interesting about Wrath of Becky is that it's my and our first overtly, overtly violent film, um, which, uh, you know, I wouldn't say as a filmmaker, I started out being like, I'm going to make revenge teenage fic- flicks. But now, like, I might only make those. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but in the beginning, you know, like, let's just use Rosemary's Baby as an example. For yeah. example, uh, there's nothing overtly violent about that movie. And yet it feels very violent in the way the cameras placed the ang- the wide angle l- lenses they use, you know, like it's just horror has this unique ability to have a lot of blood, have no blood and make you feel so scared. And so like taken advantage. Of. Yeah. <laughs> but then also you can be in control as well. Like there's in 90 minutes and 83 minutes in the case of wrath, Becky or in three hours, like you can feel so many things in the genre, in this one genre and there's nothing greater than that. I mean, like, uh, and we get to manipulate audiences. Like, that's fantastic. I don't know if that just makes me like really fucked up. But um, yeah, I just ever since I was a kid, I would go over to my aunt's house for sleepovers, and she would. I'd be like six, and she'd be like, "Okay, so tonight we're watching The Hand That Rocks the Cradle." And I don't know if you guys know that movie from the eighties. Oh, like, yeah. Yes. And I was like, okay. And then I'd go home and not sleep for two weeks. And my mom would be like, you're never sleeping at your aunt again. And they're like, of course I'd be like, of course I am. <laughs> and then it would be dead palm the next night or the next week or whatever. And I think a lot of, you know, once I decided at then 10 to be a director, there was no option. I was like, I'm going to make these types of movies because I can't stop thinking about them. Mm-hmm. I can't stop thinking about them. Like, I want to do that. So, yeah. yeah. Beautifully said. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That's why we all love the horror genre so much. It's one of the only genres that lives inside of your brain always. When you try and go to sleep at night, those are the things that flash in your mind. And it's a, there's no other genre like it. And Matt, how about you? Any any particular moments that have kind of become a part of your creative DNA, so to speak, in the realm of horror? Absolutely. Um, I mean, for me, so I grew up going like living in movie theaters Fridays and Saturdays. Um Friday was family movie night. My mom and dad took us, my sisters, me and my sisters, uh, to the movies every Friday night. Um, we always saw like movies opening night or Saturday night of opening weekend. So for me, it was always about the experience of like a full theater having just that, an experience. It was always like an event. And the thing that I loved about horror films was that's exactly what it was. You know, it was an event. People were going to experience the energy of that hour and a half or that two hours. And it permeates, you know, um, the first film <clears throat> that I remember being like terrified and waking up in like a flop sweat wasn't even in a movie theater. We, we were asked this recently. It was actually, I too had an, an aunt who would show me movies I wasn't allowed what to watch if, at home. What happened to us? Um, <laughs> he had like crazy aunts. Yeah. Um, and, and I wasn't allowed to watch these movies at home. And I was seven years old and she showed, uh, she showed a scream. And, you know, I watch scream today and it's like a horror comedy, right? But at seven, seven yeah. that ghost face staring at you through the window, which is what I imagined was going to happen when you wake up like, in your fort that you've made with your cousins in the family room in your aunt's apartment. <laughs> it was terrifying. And I remember standing and going to my aunt and uncle's room and standing at the edge of the bed and too scared to wake them up. Cause I didn't want to like upset my uncle who's scary. Um, but, uh, but I didn't want to go back to the fort. So like, I just stood there until they woke up and they were like, what the fuck are you doing? Dude? <laughs> are you like, you're just watching yeah. sleep. Um, like I remember, <laughs> I remember that night so vividly. But then it was also the night we went and saw The Ring and my dad did his favorite thing in the world, which was play pranks on us after horror films, whether it was moving my sister's car when they went and saw Scream 3 (laughs) at like 11 p.m. So they came out in their car in an empty parking lot or after we saw The Ring turning 
the the TV on. I was like, my room was on the far side of the house. And I was, I think it was 10, I was 10 when that movie came out. Ooh, water on the floor. Yeah. We just have Um, a nine month old. So I'm taking, I'm taking stock. Nice. Congratulations, by the way. And then you go to the other side of things, which taps into Wrath of Becky a little bit when it comes to action horror comedy. And one of my all time favorite nights as a child was my dad woke me up and took me to an 11 PM showing to show the dead. Yes. It was one of my favorite movie going experiences of all time. And it changed my life. And I think a lot of what we tapped into for Wrath and Becky was like the Edgar Wright energy that you want to have where you're walking that fine line of like human characters, um, comedy, horror, social commentary, you know, all of that. So that's my long winded answer of saying that is the, the multifaceted journey that horror has played in my life and why it's, why it's been such a, a part of my life. Wow. First of all, I'm saying you guys aren't here. You guys have to come you over. You guys have to come over. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. We have an extensive Shaun of the Dead, Edgar Wright collection of uh, stuff from the film. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. 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 We, we, yeah. just, we might just show up at the <laughs> Yeah, we got it. We got it. Like that as a child watching you sleep. Like, sorry. (laughs) No, bring the baby. We bring the baby. Yeah, we got kids. It's all good. Um, So, Suzanne, can you tell us about how you first met Matt and what your journey as a creative collaborators has been like? Oh, the short. The short. The short version is um, because it's very long and like. uh, the short version is our dads met before we were born. Wow. What? Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. It's in, like a Nora, a, if we made Nora Ephron movies, it would be a Nora Ephron movie. I just don't even, I could sit down and try and write it and I'd be like, who dies in this? Like, <laughs> like, like it's not, it's, I don't know how to oh, make it. Oh, cause this. you're so fucked up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so they, my, both of our dads were producers. They started working. Matt wrote a script that was sent to my dad and my dad was like, Hey, can you do coverage on this script? And I was like, Ugh, fine. We were both 21. Yeah. And I was like, I just want to do my own stuff. And like, I'm reading other people's stuff. I'm depressed in a 20 year old crisis. Um, and I read the script and I was like, this is good. Dad, you should meet him. And so he came into my dad's office and yeah, that was it. We were like, you're cute. And he was like, you're cute. And uh, then we... That's good. I'm told the short version. Yeah. I love it. You're no, I appreciate this. this. It's you're a cute. far better movie. You're cute, you're cute nine-month-old baby. Um, <laughs> ten, no, ten years ten later. Years later. Uh, yeah, and then we. I was working in development, like I said, and he was working with another writing partner, and we'd come home, and we'd just start writing together, and we were like, let's just do it at night to see if like we don't want to kill each other. You know, like our relationship's really important. Let's just like test the waters with this writing thing. And we loved it so much that we kept doing it. And then we were like, let's really test the water with our relationship and try and direct together. Um, and then if we don't want to kill each other, then we'll get married. So we didn't want to kill each other. And so we got married. So are everything like we would have put into a wedding money wise for money, like money yeah. wise yeah. went into the open house. Yeah. And yeah. We figured, like, if we had any success at all with open house, maybe we would make our, our money back and we could pay for a wedding. Um, but we were like driven to make it work. We went to couples therapy before directing the movie together. So we could, like, Smart. Wow. We could like lay the groundwork for how to get through stressful conversations and not like attack each other and not dirty fight. And like, oh, we wanted to like preemptively yeah. like, do couples therapy to help us co-direct brilliant that's brilliant all right matt i'll ask you this what do you love about the storyteller that you are when you are with suzanne oh god that's easy great question (laughs) (laughs) oh that that's easy suzanne has made me what a good question i never get to answer this suzanne has made me such a better filmmaker um both uh, as, as a writer and director, um, she, so w- when we met, there was such a divide in like what she was raised on versus what I was raised on. Like we went to every new release every Friday and Saturday night and then watched way too much TV at home. Um, at, at way too many movies. At, she was raised on like everything pre 1980. And I was raised on like 1980 and beyond. Um, and 
so when we met, we had this great balance where we got to, it was exciting. We got to introduce each other to all of these films. And she was so embarrassed by the AFI hundred best films that I hadn't seen. Like, like the slew of films I hadn't seen on that list. <laughs> One she likes to brag about is I, as a, like a film addict, I shouldn't say this, but she already like revealed this in in an interview the other day. You've never seen Psycho. I'd never seen Psycho. <gasps> um, it was like one of those movies where I'm like, hey, yeah. I, I I I plead guilty to that too. I have not seen the original Psycho. What the hell? No. Yeah. You know that. Oh, you, like, you guys are going to get divorced. <laughs> after. Yeah, just, every time I hear it, I just. You know, like, yeah, you know. I, I was seen. just watching it. I know. It's like, like I'll go out and it's on the background and I'll be like, oh. That's it's psycho. At this point, it's like it's been so long since you haven't seen it. You're like, why? Right. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when a film is like so iconic, yeah, and there's such standout moments, I'm like, no, that's like, lazy. Gonna, that's no, no, lazy. It's lazy, and and without fail, let me finish. <laughs> uh, Our therapy went really well, but yeah. <laughs> every time I finally sit my ass down and watch them, or I should say, Suzanne gets me to sit my ass down and watch them, I'm like, holy shit! Like, and Except she's like, I don't I, look now. He was not a don't I did look not now like don't look now. fan, which was you're wrong and you're dumb. No. <laughs> Sorry, not a fan. Um, Continue talking about me. Anyway, she, it, the the easy answer to that question is she introduced me to so much that has made me a, a stronger storyteller. She challenges me. She pushes me um, when I have no faith in myself whatsoever, which is. Uh, often uh, she plays the other side of things and she challenges me to believe in myself, you know, when I'm going to sit down and write, um, you know, I never would have taken on the challenge of trying to write a script like rapid Becky in three weeks, uh, which was the time we were given. If she didn't say like, you can do it. Like she was like, I can't. Cause she was in her first trimester of pregnancy and was like, no fucking way. Am I going to write a movie right now? No. Um, but she said like, you can do it. Go for it. Um, and anytime, anytime I'm writing and I'm like, I just, I don't know why I do this. I have an existential crisis. She gets me through it. So that's so, that's so nice. Well, we're going to get to this. We got to get to this three week thing in a sec, but uh, just to, just to put the spotlight the other way. So Suzanne, I yeah. would love to hear your perspective on how Matt colors and nurtures <laughs> your creative process. Oh. Well, let's see. I um, never intended to be a writer. It was always directing 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 and so i still struggle with writing um and matt has convinced me that i am a writer um i've i learned i've learned how to write through matt uh which has been such a gift uh and it's a lot of it is my personality i'm very hyperactive and i can't sit my ass down um to finish something um but so he's taught me kind of how to harness that and become a writer. Um, and then as, as it pertains to directing, Matt is like the most anal person you've ever met. And when it comes to directing, it's like magnificent to watch and directing. You have to look at the overall picture and you have to look at the pixels in the front, you know, like you have to be able to do all of it at once. Mm -hmm. And like I just mentioned my hyperactivity, um, He's especially as an early, as a younger, I mean, I'm 31 now, but when we were making open house, it was like, what, 24. And I'd be like, okay, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. And he'd be like, no, no, no. We're, it's got to be perfect. And of course, perfection doesn't exist, but to the best of our ability, let's make it perfect. And there's always time to pause and correct if you need to. And that's something that I just truly admire, mm -hmm. especially when you have no money and you're rushing and you're trying sure. to work like it's an admirable quality. Um, and you know, he's a big, big, uh, lens flare, JJ Abrams. <laughs> I've, I've, yet to get angle. To, I've yet to really get to use that passion of mine. I know. And sometimes so, so like the only thing I'll say is like, we always, almost always disagree on that. I'll be like, no way, get that out of here. But I'm like slowly coming on around to your lens flare. It's going to happen, guys. Yeah. One day, I'm going to get my lens flares. That's uh, you ever. We should do more with that. Yeah. That was just so nice and warm. So nice. That was the nicest you've I ever been. I still feel bad for calling you dumb. <laughs> so the, the first Becky, right? It was yeah. released 
during an unprecedented time in in history. I mean, there was no open movie theaters. We went to the drive-in to see this film yeah. that was very un, unexpected, the suspense action horror adventure of this 13-year-old girl facing off against a group of you know neo-Nazis. And we got to see a side of Lulu Wilson that we never saw before. We got to see a side of Kevin James that we never got to see before. He was terrifying. And I also believe that all the films that came out in that year, especially the beginning of, of 2020, they all hit differently. And I think they're forever seared into kind of the collective consciousness. They're all very important. They become very important films just because of the time they were released. We'll remember them forever. This being one of them. What was your experience with that film? With, you know, the first big Becky, when it came out and what did it mean to you at that time? Mm, so we're terrible. Um, <laughs> Didn't watch we it. could lie. You didn't watch. Um, no, I want to hear the truth. I want to hear the truth. Lie. So, no. um, we didn't see it until. So we're friends with Lulu Wilson prior to this movie. She was our neighbor. And, oh, no way. Uh, yeah, in Studio City. And even worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> way worse. Um, way worse. And, like when she was going you know, off the shooting. It gets worse. Yeah. I'm told you I'm gonna tell the truth. It gets worse. <laughs> and then uh we're friends with the Boulder Light producers. Uh so we were friends with everyone. So you're and, well aware uh, of Becky yeah, happening. And we're like, great job, guys. No, uh That's we were funny. pieces of shit and continued to be pieces of shit for like two years. <laughs> Until they called us and they were like, hey, you want to do the sequel for Becky too? Becky, yeah, for Becky. We were like, hold that thought. Went and watched the movie and we're like, yes! <laughs> hey, at least you discovered it, right? I think, the, I think what actually happened is we went, yeah! And then oh, really? I went, I think we should watch the first film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and they give you three weeks, three weeks, and you're pregnant as hell during this time. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Why three weeks? What was the, what was the rush? What were they trying to... I don't know. It had to do, it was some contractual thing, like the day they wanted to release the film. Like a lot of different parties were involved in the film. There's a reason there's 21 producers on the, on the rap Becky. Um, So I think it had to do with like a contractual window of how long they had to, to do a sequel. And um, so JD Lifshitz uh, at Boulder Light called me and said, Hey, would you guys be interested? And it was December 16th, 2021. I remember the date. See anal. Um, like who remembers these days? <laughs> and uh, and he was like, "Cool, cool, 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 cool." Um, if you're interested, we need a script in three weeks. Like he said, January seventh, and I was like, "Okay, I've never written something faster than like six months." So I, I was like, "Oh my god, okay." Uh, and I don't know what I was thinking, but we watched the film and we were in love with it, and had immediately just so many ideas for the sequel, and so yeah. it was just kind of like for for these reasons we need it by january 7th go i think i handed it in like january 14th i think it actually took me failure like four like three and a half or four weeks yeah. or something like that yeah. but um but that that's why they needed it so quickly and then it was gonna be this like fan fair like let's just give the fans you know this this cult following that this film has let's give them we'll shoot it a sequel we'll shoot it in santa Clarita, like and we turn in the script and by the way, I have to stop saying I wrote it in three to four weeks because like reviews are coming out now and it's really funny to get the bad reviews sent to you and they're like, apparently Angel wrote it in three weeks. Oh, and, God. and you're like, he's a uh, yeah. I can't um, believe there'd be any bad reviews about this, But by it's the also way. true. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Anyway, it was like people read the script that were involved with the film and they were like, look, this is way too big for our budget, but we love it so much. We want to make it work. So yeah, good producers. Yeah. Really good producers. So they just kind of like went off and found the money. And I mean, we were prepping in by April, we were in Jersey on scouts and May we were shooting and it was just like, by the time we were shooting, I was seven months pregnant and yeah. not like to remind me that I broke three director's chairs. You broke several chairs. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I broke two and we were like in a Q and a with Sean Williams. And he was like, you broke three. And I was like, okay. okay. First of all, she talks about it all the time. No, it's true. It's true. They had a PA like sitting, standing behind my chair, like, please, we don't have enough insurance for a falling fat director. <laughs> she was gorgeous. She was glowing. It's sweaty in New Jersey. Yeah. It was. Anyway, I can't. I look, I can't imagine what that was like. You can't. You I, know? I, I, yeah. You might be able to, but. Hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hell. Hell. Exactly. 
compression socks. So slow. Yeah. Ugh. And you had anyway. the what? You had the gestational diabetes and the pup or whatever that rash pregnancy. Yeah, rash like two percent of people oh. when they're pregnant get this rash where you become allergic to the pregnancy hormone full body rash i got it you know what we need like 18 oh, mother's days a day like <laughs> every agree. every hour Eight. like who else you're allergic to the thing that's happening to you yes. <laughs> it was crazy brutal i'm curious if the looming deadline had anything to do like did, did you find that that saturated itself into the the I don't know the tremendous veracity of the script and the action that takes place. It's so swift. It's so nonstop. Do you find that that looming deadline, you know, got into the writing process in some way? Yeah, I I do actually. I, I think um, we, we definitely had a vision for the sequel and knew what we wanted to do really like, it just felt very organic, like mm-hmm. how we wanted to approach it and what we wanted to, what kind of inspired us. Um, in terms of other films. And so I think it was that I think it was a really fun month because it was yeah. basically us watching some of our favorite movies sequels. and sequels yeah. um, every night and then me writing in the day and then, you know, rinse and repeat. Um, so I, I think, I think, yes, I think the deadline definitely helped. I also have to say, Anytime pacing comes up, like rhythm was a big part of this film. Rhythm was like driven home on that set Edgar constantly. Wright inspiration, yeah. Yeah, like that that was a big part of it in terms of what we were doing behind the camera. But I, I always have to say when when pacing comes up, our our editor, Stephen Boyer, um, he got it. He just got it. Like he knew what we were what we were going for. And um and we edited it. He edited it. We did in like five weeks. We cut this film like, in every, five weeks. It was so fast. So like that we, goes to we finished it on a Friday. Yeah. And she went into labor that weekend. Yeah. So it was like, it was, it was, it was yeah, nuts. it was fast. It was nuts. Yeah. Um, I would say also, I think the script benefited from basically no second guessing, you know, and I'm like, does this like, no, it wasn't time. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. which is very in- unique. Um, and the only second guessing came because like you're on, you're on set and the location falls through and you're like, shit, I got to rewrite this because it's a different location. Not because like, does it suck? Do I suck? Does everything suck? Should I not do this anymore? Like that doesn't exist when you have a three week deadline. You're like, what kind of weapons do they have in barns? Oh, a machete thing. Great. Let's use that. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll call it a machete thing. Oh yeah. Uh, Ratha, Ratha Becky has uh, a fun comedic change of tone, not only in the uh, dialogue that you guys wrote, but also in the visuals and the way it was edited. Uh, how did this decision come about? Was it pitched uh, that way or scripted as such from the start? Scripted as such from the start. We knew um, after we finally watched the first one that we wanted to... Uh, one of the things we like so much, some of our favorite sequels, you have the same great character. It's like the same, same, but different. And what we wanted to do was have our same character, but shift the tone, um, give the audiences something that they're not expecting with a character, with a familiar character. Um, and so that was very intentional. Um, also our bad guys are real people right now. So to me, if I were a viewer watching these noblemen, aka Proud Boys, um, doing what they're doing, I it wouldn't be so funny to me um, if it was taken very, very, very seriously. So it was important to us to embrace the satire, make them the dummies that they are, and uh, really lean into that in a comic book type way. Um, you know, there's a reason why she's. It's very intentional that she's in a r- bright red jumpsuit running around in the middle of the day. Like it, it, it's these people exist in our world, but this story does not exist in our world. If that makes yeah, sense. If there's a reason the finale takes place in the day, yeah. you know, and that we don't lean in tonight's um, the whole idea of like hidden in plain sight uh, was something we wanted to kind of metaphorically tap into with our cinematography and shooting this in the day. Um, but yeah, I, I think that Shaun of the Dead experience I speak to is a big part of from from inception on that December 16th date that we were approached with the concept and watched the first film late, like immediately after that call, it was like, what if we approach it this way? And I think that had a lot to do with our favorite sequels turn things on their head. They don't just do 
the same thing the first one did and jump right in and you know they they turn things on their head they they implement new kind of tonal shifts i mean when you look at some of the greatest sequels of all time that james cameron has done when you look at you know terminator 2 when you look at um alien when you look at aliens you know they they manage to kind of add a different element aliens is far more like action movie than the first one right and so you go holy shit, James Cameron turned it into an action movie. Um, and I think that was something that really intrigued us in this film. It's like, we're evolving Becky, right? Becky's grown up. There's an evolution to the character. Let's also evolve the camera. Let's evolve what we do with color correction. Let's evolve tone. Let's let's grow in, in every aspect of, of this film making experience with, with the character of Becky. The Boo Crew will be right back. May I have your attention, please? I have been asked to explore the serious side of Alfred Hitchcock. Very likely, I suspect, because I am Alfred Hitchcock. I have chosen to do this through the following serious statement. I want you to see Psycho, a motion picture, exactly the way I originally made it, uncut, with every scene intact especially the famous shower bath scene, which the TV version did not dare show. This occurs 44 minutes from the start of Psycho. Watch for it. And remember, no one will be admitted to see Psycho except from the very beginning. I now leave you with this final serious message. Suggested for mature audiences. touched on that lulu obviously was at the point where although significantly mature for her age when she made the first one and everything she's done up to this point even a year when mm-hmm. you're dealing with those teenage years is like leaps and bounds as far as like processing right lifetime i want suzanne to talk to this because she talks she has a great answer and also oh. i want to say this for your listeners can i go pee while she's of course, she of course. Yeah, do it. I'll that out. I want everyone to know that I have. <laughs> do it. Okay, no. no bladder infections <laughs> on this show. Healthy no bladders. <laughs> okay, what did and he just like he's got wasted this yeah, me. Yeah, okay, here you go. Um, I did he's say left. he has the smallest bladder. Okay, I did say um, a couple days ago that yes, the third the years between thirteen and sixteen or seventeen were like are insane. Yeah, they're like a lifetime, and. It was very intentional. And I, you know, we we haven't spoken to the directors of the first one, Carrie and John, but I can understand why they went handheld with it. Um, you know, sh- the baddies are coming to her. Uh, in our movie, she's going to them. And she might not know exactly what she's been training for, but she has been training for something. And, you know, Becky doesn't go to therapy. It's not something she's like, well, I should go on betterhelp.com. Like, she's like, I need to learn how to throw a knife and I need to run to get my wrath out or figure out something else physical to do. And uh, so it was very intentional for us to move the camera in a way that, you know, um, that showcased her evolution as a character from 13 to 17. Sure. Now, I don't know. I mean, you mentioned before that you were neighbors. I'm not sure how close a relationship you had with her at that time. I'm just kind of kind of curious if mm-hmm. if there was an existing relationship, like how much involved that she got into the creation mm-hmm. of the evolution of the character and things maybe she had ideas of or things that she wanted uh, to do with the character or anything that was kind of installed into this into this experience that that she had a hand in. I just want to compliment Suze on that answer. Yes. Oh, it was a great no, it was a great oh answer. God. How was I that? I heard all of was it. that great? Um, okay. anything you said. Yeah. But. Okay. So um, Lulu Wilson, we're very close with her. And she had a lot to do. You know, we kind of pitched, once we came on board, we kind of pitched the general idea of where the movie's going. And she sent us music to listen to. Oh, that she great. Listen to. She was like, can I do, you know, she she's an amazing fencer. She started working with her fencing coach, and uh, who's also a stunt coach. And she started 
you know, taking stunt lessons because she wanted, she did like 75% of her own stunts. Wow. She's insane. Yeah. Um, And our stunt team was so amazing. Just helping her through because also, and this is a sidebar, but like, I like to say that shooting this movie was like shooting a play because we had basically the smallest budget ever for a movie with a minor dogs stunts, blood. I think we had half the budget of the first. Yeah. We had half the budget of the first one. You would never know. Wow. Thank you. And, uh, that's a testament to the crew and to Lulu because you have one opportunity to do a gag because a, a squib or whatever, like, first of all, we don't have that much money. Second of all, it takes time to reset things. So she's rolling in this fake gunfire, you know, like all this stuff that she does and she nails it. And our camera operator would nail it and our special effects guy would nail it. And it was just, remarkable to watch as the directors were like okay i mean we told you guys what to do but like we're not doing this you guys are all doing this and it was truly amazing but yes that's a little bit of a tangent but um lulu had a lot to do with it she she kind of is becky like if you meet her in person you're like she needs to run this country um no no she's remarkable no one could play this role yeah other than lulu wilson i mean she she has so much character she is so feisty. She is so funny. Um, she yeah, is so much mad. She's yeah. so smart. Like she's just such a wonderful, unique, fun human being. And so she has really created not only who Becky was when she was an angsty 13 year old. I think she got the script for Becky when she was 11. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So that just goes to show you like to be an 11 year old and read the script for the first film, for those who have seen it. I mean, imagine that. Right. And she was like, Yes. <laughs> and then to be 16 and doing this film and to have evolved the way that we've seen her evolve, because like we said, we knew her back when to, to give her the comedic opportunities and watch her just slay those. Like she, it's just, she's incredible. Mm-hmm. I was curious, how did you both uh, split up the writing and directing duties? Was it split uh, for specific scenes or actors? So he, like I said, cause I was very not um he wrote it we broke the story together and then he wrote it and then so that means you know on set if there's script changes or whatever he's doing it um you know we would work through them together and then i would go uh to sleep cry and went on my belly (laughs) um and then he would cry into the computer uh but i uh when it comes to directing we don't split anything up we are outside of peeing as we found out um we are joined at the hip um, even actually when one of us has to pee on set, the other person usually walks with them and like stands nearby well, because we're talking like you use you're, the you're time. Using the time, you know, someone's right. following you yeah. to go to the bathroom, like the production designer or the first AD. And you're like, okay, come walk with me. And decisions get made every five seconds. And I can't be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Matt can't be somewhere else because then it's like, okay, well shit, I, I gotta, we gotta make sure Matt signs off on that. We're gonna make sure Sue signs off on that. And it's a huge waste of time. You, we also enjoy doing it together. So, yeah. you know, you never have enough time in a day when you're making a film, except maybe Clint Eastwood, who I think like refuses to do longer than 10 hour days. And sometimes <laughs> it's like six hours and everyone goes home and we love it. But uh, I'll speak for myself. I feel like you never have enough time in a day on a movie set and um you don't have time as co-directors to waste if you give one answer to a question and the other person now watches the monitor and something happens and they go wait wait, wait. why is that that?" i mean you don't have time because now you've wasted a take and on a film like this to suzanne's point you only get so many takes when you have 18 days to shoot an action horror comedy wait wait, you shot it in 18 days (laughs) 18 days to shoot an action for comedy oh with, a minor, with a minor wow. lead. Oh my God. Dog, squibs, uh, special oh, effects, God. special effects makeup. Um, so you only have so much time. And for us as co directors, I think, and I say this as a good thing, uh, we're both very, like, we're very opinionated, controlling people when it comes to our art. <laughs> And I don't say it in a bad way because we're also simultaneously, I find, I, I believe, incredibly collaborative. We know we can't do it without no. every single crew member on that set. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we're very specific in our tastes. And so uh, we both need to be involved in communicating with each other. I, I'd say the, the magic recipe is we never, and this was something we established in our, in our 
couples therapy before open house. So when we talked about, you know, how we co-direct without running into issues, we never, um, prep is everything. Like it, it, there's always going to be stuff on the fly, but if 85% of the, of the questions that you need to be answered as directors happen in prep, the other 15%, you kind of have developed now a communication mm-hmm. through that 85% of prep that you can kind of like quickly find a solution based on what you've established. Um, we never bend over. It's never like, fine, whatever. You get this we, one. we disagree. Mm. You get this one. I get the next one. Yeah. Causes resentment, causes disagreements. I'm going to hang on to it if we get into post and I still hate that take. You know, like there, there, it just does no good. And the other thing is when we call cut, and this goes all the way down to getting into the weeds a little bit of filmmaking here, what we talk to our first ADs about and our DPs about before we ever step on the set when we call cut, the first thing we do is we look at each other and we discuss any notes we have for actors, any notes we have for camera. Great. And then we divide and conquer and give those notes. But they're notes that we have discussed and are coming from both of us. So now we go back to our monitor. So we save time there. But like we use that time to make sure we're on the same page. Mm. And so we say to our first AD and our DP, when we call cut behind that monitor, we're going to look at each other. Give us a second. We promise you, ultimately, it will save us all time. Mm-hmm. Mm, wow. I mean, as a as a testament to all that from the other side, I distinctly remember we uh, were talking to Kate uh, shortly after the release of Hypnotic and her <laughs> comment was that, yeah, being directed by you two was like essentially being directed by one person. It was like two halves of the same brain. There was she she remarked that there was this wonderful nonverbal way that you guys communicate while on set that, that she had never seen before. Which is, uh, I mean, it just kind of, you know, backs up exactly kind of what you're saying and giving us the other side of that process is it's a very cool perspective. My heart was beating at a mile a minute throughout this entire thing. I mean, I'm not kidding. Nothing has affected me like that in a very long time. And you can experience this film with your eyes closed and you can take that ride just by listening to what you guys have put into the dialogue. You can also get on this roller coaster with earplugs on and the visuals alone will take you, it'll conjure that same effect. Um, no. You're talking about the editing, like the transi- transitions are sometimes jarring. Sometimes they melt into each other, like the, 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 the house to the cabin in, in, in this one shot that we see uh, from where Becky's staying. In. And there's this really cool transition. It just kind of melts together. And then you'll mm-hmm. have, you know, cuts of her screaming or cuts giving us uh, perspective from the first film. It's just really a, a journey. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the magic of creating that kind of sense of anticipation and suspense and fun, not only in the script, but through that personality of the camera and the planning involved in that. Yeah. Mm. Well, I will say, let's just talk about the camera really quickly and the planning, because like Matt said, prep is everything, which is funny because we never have time for prep. Um, like especially open house and Becky hypnotic was a bit more of a higher budget, but even hypnotic, everyone had to quarantine for two weeks. So like we we still had three weeks of prep. It seems like that's our number is like three weeks of prep, which is like not enough. Okay. But um, RDP Julia Swain is a magician. She's also the most organized person, which is so helpful. We started prep with her. And she has the most beautiful shot list of all time and format wise format wise. And that, and not only that, but she would at the end of each day curate and pull like at three o'clock in the morning would pull from um, our dit would pull images of everything we shot. So at the end of the day, we can make sure and look that the film was looking cohesive so we're we're looking at stills of each setup essentially. Yeah, we basically have sure to make sure you're yeah. making the same film. Which is like mm-hmm. not something a movie this size should be able to do. And and that's just cuz she was and is amazing. We didn't step onto set, but or say by the time we stepped onto set for our first shot, we had shot listed the entire movie. Yeah. Which is normal. But not. I don't know for, that it's normal. I mean, it is I, very normal for bigger things. Like you sure. have more time, and you, you know you have binders of shot lists, and they're printed, and they're beautiful. And you have a you have a what are they called that we never can afford? The guys storyboard. Yeah, storyboard artists. I can't wait to have one of those one day. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Um, but in terms of getting back to your uh, your question, I think for us, you just well, that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's, it's a big it's, part of it is Julia. And prepping and prepping the hell out of because 
and edit knowing prepping the hell because you can see the movie in your brain yeah. i think you're it editing helps. it in your brain i think it also helps when you're writer directors like i personally mm-hmm. as a writer try and put on the page exactly what you're going to see on on screen um it's something that is just in the nature of how i write like i write to film score so i write to the rhythm of music i write with that in mind because i know what like in my in my it's just what my mind does i know what i'm going to be putting you know where the cuts are and so yeah you know what we have to get. I, I know what i'm going to be putting in that camera um and so ideally every i even write to uh to cuts you know like every when i go to a new line in the script it's a cut and so sometimes if if i'm doing if we're doing quick cuts it's a new line every every image is a new line even if it's going to happen in a matter of three seconds um that helps the process i think of kind of prepping visually for for what you want to have the camera doing mm. um so yeah i i think that's a big part of it was was that it, it was also in terms of like what our style was in the film when you speak to like how we how we decided on that style um a lot of that had to do with those nights that we talk about in those four weeks we were writing this film three four weeks where you're spending your nights just watching and re-watching every tarantino film every edgar wright film every guy ritchie film and you're you're going okay we want to pull from that energy and that style and the best way to do that on the page and then translate it to camera is to watch the greats Mm -hmm. who do it and and go okay like who makes those movies okay these are some of the staples i mean no tarantino edgar wright like two of my all-time favorite filmmakers so you're just watching them over and over and i think there's something very conscious and also subconscious about how that translates um and so i i think that was a big part of it Um, and and care and as granular as camera camera movement like it's uh, the the camera halts energy or it brings energy you know what i mean so like knowing the the movie in and out and its dna is important before you before you start rolling because you need to know when you're going to cut to these singles of the boys listening to that song they're playing because that's going to be funny you know like it's It's the rhythm it's the rhythm and it's the we rarely have unless we pretty much only have like these still singles on the nobleman like like on them because they're just like dumb you know otherwise the camera's kind of always moving with becky well that has a lot to do with too like you always want to tell a story with the camera you know in some cases you want the camera to be speaking the inner monologue of your protagonist in other cases you want it to be a character in itself i think we do that i think we do both those things at different times we also spend a lot of time with just our antagonist in the house and so there were very specific choices made in prep about okay this uh, on the whole this movie when you look at the first film Becky's home is being invaded. She's not in control. Talk about this when you were peeing. Oh, you did. This is why we can't leave our side. <laughs> <laughs> well, we knew we wanted a safer, more evolved yeah. look. Yeah. But can you talk about when we chose handheld. No, not yet. So we chose handheld only in the moments when our antagonist is out of control. God. When when Daryl Jr. feels like he's not in control of a situation, which doesn't happen for some time, that's the first time we go to handheld yeah. in the film um as opposed to the first film where you're in handheld from a protagonist standpoint yeah so all of those things kind of help you go okay how do we not only tell a story with our camera but also differentiate what happened in the first film and what carrie and john did and do that in this film so that it stands on its own two feet uh what scores were you listening when you were writing that you want to know the number one score i was listening to yeah becky that score is so fucking badass and it's such a i mean talk about like a theme most small like like low budget or films don't have that theme just yeah. kicks yeah it kicks. and so it kicks so i listen to that thing on re i mean i listen to that a ton it also is like you know you go okay i want to be true to the to the source right that's becky's theme um it helps when becky starts kicking ass in the script and you have her theme going on yeah um i listened to some of the music lulu sent me don't ask me artists and song titles it was not <laughs> my kind of music sure, so sure. It's very not the kind of thing. yeah uh and then god what other what other um 
I just wrote another script, Think so I'm trying us. to like. Did you write this? No, no, Mm-mm. not the, this last one. I did. Oh, not, wait, not right. Wrath of Becky. I just remember a lot of. Well, that's a lot of. Becky. Jordan, yeah, and Jordan Peele's music too has a lot of like. Yeah, the... breaths and things. Yeah, yes. chanting. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yes. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I won't waste our time. I just. Because now it's going to drive me nuts. I'm going to have to find out. <laughs> hey, no, no problem. <laughs> but it no. was mainly Becky because I would be like on bed rest and I'd hear. Wait, that's Kill Bill. No, Kill Bill. That's oh, what you listen yeah, to. Oh, yeah, yeah. To the siren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Ton of Kill Bill. Ton of Kill Bill. Ton of Kill Bill. Also, um, the Sherlock Holmes scores. Oh, um, wow. They're like. Random. They're, no, I know, but they're such. Hans Zimmer's scores for the Sherlock Holmes films are just fucking rhythm. Like, it's just like a freight train the whole time and so when you listen to his 16 minute track in sherlock holmes 2 it's 16 minutes that you're not going to stop moving your fingers on that keyboard because you just can't like you're just like going so that kind of stuff always drives me too mm. and then the other part of that question is uh, a little bit is uh, creating the illusion of that catharsis that we get as an audience we actually we hate these guys from yeah. the first time we see the main trio of guys of which you are one of them. Um, We, I've never hated someone more when they come on (laughs) and the things they are saying to this kid, but you do it in a way like you push us, you push it so far, but you you stop it at a certain point, but it's, it's so close to that line. Was Mm. that by design? Were you you conscious of that? Were you like, God, we got to push this far. So the audience just fucking can't wait for these guys to get what's coming to them. Talk a bit about that. Yes, it was very important uh, to me personally, not to sexualize a child, Mm -hmm. a girl. Um, And, you know, things, uh, a a script is living, right? So you write it and then you get on set and your actors say, and there were some lines where I was like, "Mm, that's too much. We got to change it. Um, And other lines were fine. Um, But, because you don't i don't need a shower after watching this movie sure, yeah. like that's not the vibe we were going for but um that line that you're talking about it became a very clear line on day one of writing the script when i spent no more than an hour reading through these message boards um like these incel message boards and just researching like it was like an it was a lot of researching how these people talk and like mm. their cells and stuff like that but it was also disgusting it was also no more than an hour on the actual message boards reading their comments because you can't do that. Like that is not something you, you don't, you don't want to see that. That's, it is so far and it is so upsetting and disgusting that you can't actually believe there are people writing those things Mm. on a public forum. So you go, oh, okay, immediately this is fantastic because I know who our bad guys are because fuck these people. But at the same time, you go, all right, now what is the, how do we tow that line? And, and you kind of go, okay, I know who they are at their core. So I can kind of write those people, but pull back on how we present them and still make it very much R-rated and they're saying things they shouldn't be saying. I mean, like one of the first lines is them talking about how they want to fuck Becky's mom based on the name that she gave her. Like, you know, like, so you're just like, God, they're just disgusting douchebags. You just want to punch them. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was very much making sure you don't go too far because at a certain point it's not funny. Mm -mm. Uh, It's not, it's, it's upsetting. It's, it can be very upsetting very quickly. Did you guys keep any props or costumes? Yeah, we have a be- um, uh, the beanie upstairs. Oh, yes. Um, what else do we have? We have the beanie. Oh, we have um, the thumb drive. We have the thumb drive. That's what about important. the ju- the jumpsuit? Was incredible. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, the, the jumpsuit. jumpsuit. Our costume designer Elena Lark. She made that. We were like yeah. red jumpsuit, and she like pulled the patches and like I mean, oh, so that cool. Is, that is Elena Lark. She she's she was she's unbelievable. She handmade the diner costume too. And it pops yeah. everything every time you see Lulu. Everything pops like a, like a yeah. comic book. Yes, exactly. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, was the beanie oh. the same one from the first? Yeah. Or, okay. They couldn't, find, they couldn't find it, but enough people like make them on Etsy based on the first Becky that I think she was like, "We'll just buy one." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the kind of stuff I don't necessarily know. All I know is there was one there. Yeah. I will say, 
I will say the uh, the wardrobe department and production design department got us gifts for our son. Uh, he wasn't born yet when we wrapped, at, obviously. Uh, and they got us a little fox beanie for him, like Aww. a baby. Which he fit in barely because... Because his head's huge. It's disgusting. He's <laughs> <laughs> in like a, even a 98 percentile for head. circumference. Yeah, you're like, um, he's in like a toddler hat. So yeah, I know we have other stuff. We have the book. Oh, we have the, the book. Thumb that, drive yeah. That okay. Open. And like pulls the thumb, like we have stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we're suckers for that stuff. As uh, as we I mentioned think at the, the key, top, someone has the key. I think one of the producers has the key. Oh, that's badass. That's bad. Okay, I know we're we're coming to the end of our time yeah, here, yeah. but uh, just a, a few more quick ones uh, yeah. to to get us out of here. I have to mention uh, Sean William Scott delivers. I think the performance of his career as, as Daryl and Matt. You not only get to be, you know, uh, share uh, off camera duties or behind camera duties, but you get to share in probably one of the, uh, the best moments, you know, as a scene partner, really a, a very intimate scene with him. And uh, it's powerful. And I was wondering, as an actor, how did it feel like to be on the other end of that performance, kind of a, a receiver of all this energy? Well, Sean William Scott came on board this with so many ideas that didn't exist on the page and that really transformed the character to like a place yeah we couldn't have imagined and he he was so committed it was such a it was very refreshing to work with an actor that you get to wrap production one day and and sit on the phone with or talk at the hotel with to go over the whole next day's material and do rewrites and like get ready for the next day so that the scenes are as strong as they can possibly be and and do that for the two weeks he's there shooting because he cared that much you know this wasn't like show up shoot your scenes go home and and see you tomorrow um it, it was it was a phenomenal experience so i i i'm sure he would die to hear uh someone say they think it was the performance uh, of his career because he wanted that you know yeah um so that's that, that's how we feel too. Like I, I'm a huge Sean William Scott fan. I mean, I grew up watching all of his movies. Uh, he's the nicest guy in the world. It, it was just it was a dream getting to work with him. So I want to say that. Um, in terms of shooting that scene with him, it was very special because that was a scene that he took and said, "I know this is kind of like a third of a page monologue." which is in the monologue, but let's turn it into like, what if it's this and it gives us backstory and it presents just how dangerous he is and how manipulative he is. And, and I took that direction and I went off and I wrote this two page monologue and he was just like, that's it. That's the character. And so that was the first scene Sean William Scott shot. Wow. That was it. That scene. Yeah. And he gives this like five minute monologue. And so it was so fun to get to write that for him, to have it be such a collaborative process in terms of creating that particular moment to really define who this character is in Daryl Jr. And then to get to sit opposite him. I mean, you're kind of trying to like stay in the moment, but when you're not on camera, you're like, okay, I'm going to stay in this moment for him. But at the same time, I have my director's hat on and my writer's hat on. And I'm just like enjoying this moment yeah. because it was, it was really, really something. Um, yeah. He delivers such a chilling performance because he's, you know, he's the definition of like when your parents like disappointed in you as opposed to like angry, like that's, he's just very like until shit hits the fan, he's very calm and collected Yeah, and kind of always smiling a little bit. And you're like, Bleh. yeah, it was just, it, it was one of my highlights of my career was getting to write that scene with, with his collaboration, um, getting to direct him in that scene and then getting to sit across from him mm. as a character. And you look, you look, I mean, you, you, you look like you are really affected by what he's saying. It's, uh, it's wild. Okay. It just feels really real. Good. Good. I'm, I'm glad it was a very, it's a, it's a crucial moment in the movie. Yeah. So I yeah. hope it works. Diego comes across as such a fun, lovable dog and sidekick to Becky. Are there any fun outtakes featuring him or scenes you oh, couldn't shoot due to time or budget? My God. Oh my yes. God. Okay. <laughs> Let me just talk about outtakes real quick. I actually want to talk to the studio once the movie's out or something, because our editor cut together all the outtakes. Speaking of which, Sean William Scott would be like super menacing and we'd be cut, we call cut, and he'd be like, guys, that was great. It's like Stifler becomes Stifler right away. <laughs> like, with Matt and like the, the camera would be on Matt, we'd be doing Matt's coverage and he'd be like, 
was fantastic. Yeah. Like, like, and you're like, you're so nice. You're like, like I'm, dude, I'm not even on camera. Like you, that was your coverage. And he's like, no, but it was so good. You did such a great performance. Anyway, I'm like, wait till we turn around on you. And you're just like, who are you? Yeah. Man? He's like, so like, God, he's lovely. Okay. Yeah. Um, Diego's aka Pac. The his most name's Pac, has the most outtakes because he's a puppy. I mean, he's huge, but this was his first role. He's a puppy. We have so like tw- you can't cut when you have a dog because like you never know what three seconds you're gonna need so like we had 20 minute takes of him on so he's just supposed to like lie on the bed with lulu just butt in her face for like yeah he's not giant, he's not thick giant and lulu, being lulu is just like great ha, 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 ha. like she's such cracking a up cracking up and it's supposed to be like menacing and like quiet um then this is my favorite. This is yeah, you can call it. Oh, okay. So there's a moment in Elena's house where Becky over um Becky's in danger. Diego comes down the stairs, right? Growl, growl, growl. Oh my god, menacing giant mastiff. Okay. The growl is all post because this is the happiest puppy in the world. Um, if he I thought he was nine months, but he had just turned one. And he has this little nub tail, okay. And we had to reposition him because we're shooting the push in on Diego, where we know in post we're going to be adding this growl and he's backlit because Julia did this beautiful thing where he's backlit to make him more menacing. You can't see his face. All you can see is his tail going like this, wiggling. And we're like, wiggling, wiggling, wiggling. He's happy. Wagging. Wagging, yeah. Dog tails wag. (laughs) Wiggle. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) We have a pug. We have a pug. His tail doesn't do anything. (laughs) Uh, so his tail is just going nuts. So we had to reposition him so his tail is hidden. But if you watch the movie, because we didn't have the VFX budget to get these little things out, the shadow of him on the wall is like, you can't see his tail, but in the shadow, you just see his tail going nuts. Because <laughs> he's such a happy, happy boy. Oh, so cute. So, yeah. That's funny. We had a 26-minute take of him on the bed, and we had seven seconds. Where he finally were- laid down. Oh, seven my seconds. God. Yeah. So yeah, plenty it of is as hard as they say working with animals, but it is quite enjoyable if you're an animal lover because we would have to keep it quiet on set because you give him an ounce of love and he's just oh my god you want to smush him. Yeah, but there are plenty of times where your face is in your hands like oh my god. Yeah, I bet. Like god. what do we yeah. do? And so you you pivot. There was a lot of pivoting. A lot of pivoting. And it's but- not it's not the same Diego for the first from the first movie. Yeah. No? no. Okay. No. Yeah. That one. Uh, he was in. He, she, I think that was a she. She was in Toronto. Yeah, she was in Toronto. He's uh, he's New York based, and now he's on like NCIS. He's a star, wow. baby. Wow, yeah. so a lot long one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, uh, there, we got a million other questions, but I know we got to get yeah. this stupid thing. But okay, last last question. <laughs> we'll just leave on this without giving any spoilers. If for those who haven't seen, it, if Becky and Diego, if they do get out alive, who mm-hmm. knows? Are you actively planning on following this up and continuing the franchise? Yes. yes. Fuck nice. yeah. Definitely, yeah. So yes, the, yes, yes. The big thing that was like a mandate from when we got hired was you have to you have to answer the key. And so the first draft I wrote answered the key in the first in the opening of the film. But we couldn't afford it, so we had to cut it. Well, that wasn't even the main like the big reason was we were like, wait a minute. People got so pissed off about the key not having an answer and that in in interviews they were like, we don't know what the key is, that we were like, we kind of need to like, we want to like give a little more with the key and add a layer that didn't exist in the first film. But I think it becomes part of the tongue-in-cheek gag that is that that we we have much more of like a self-aware tongue-in-cheek thing going on in The Wrath of Becky. So it's like, we wanted to add that layer of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, look, we're going to continue to tease you with the key, but we're also going to use it as a device here and keep the MacGuffin going. What we can tell you is we know exactly what the key leads to. There's a uh, big we, hint. We in the boxed movie. them into uh, a third, third film by, by creating the giant hint in the film that if people are paying attention, kind of tells you exactly. I don't want to say too much. Uh, it, it is very intentional. And it is exactly what our plan is for the third film. And um, yeah, and and it has, it, the, we're on strike with the Writers Guild right now. Our pens are down in full solidarity. Um, but once a fair deal is reached and we're able to to pick things back up. We'll uh, be all Becky we will, 3. We will be continuing the script for Becky 3 and it's all happening. Yes. And please, please tell us it might involve 
our special uh, secret Easter egg guest star that yeah. is left as a surprise. Yes, it may. It may. Yeah, we'll we'll nice. see. We'll see. Yes, yeah. <laughs> nice. we haven't got that far along in the in the story, but we know big. We know big yeah. things. The film's sure. broken. Yeah. It's yeah. broken, and uh, all the beats are there. So yeah. now it's just about. Tying it all up. Amazing, yeah. guys. Amazing. All right. Yeah. Well, we will begrudgingly let you go. We don't want to let you go, but we have to. Thank you so much for making this movie. I mean, you, God, it made our year. It's like a, one of our favorites who we've seen in a very long time, actually. Not just year. You guys are just amazing filmmakers. You know, horror, yes. thriller or not, you guys are great storytellers. And it's always such a joy to see something you guys have done. And again, you just fucking just thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you very it's, much. It's very sweet. This mm. has been so fun. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 384. Special thanks to our new best friends and yours, Matt Angel and Suzanne Coot. How freaking cool are they, right? At time of release, your chance to experience the wrath of Becky is in theaters May 26th. Production tracks for this one provided by the good folks at Power Man 5000. Till next time, my name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D. Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shen, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shen. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.